This is hell. Hello again, listeners. This is Will Ippen, producer on This Is Hell, filling in still for Chuck Mertz, who is currently away on his family's annual vacation in northern Michigan. I trust that so far it's been restorative and incident-free. Still haven't heard any news from Chuck other than the internet connectivity is quite elusive, and man, Chuck, that sounds blissful. Enjoy it while you can. Elusive internet connectivity is uh, beautiful where you are, but uh, less blissful here. When I'm trying to upload our content to our various radio partners, or when our interviews are interrupted by connection loss, because God's favorite radio show and podcast isn't rolling in the dough we make good with the internet we have here in hell so bask in that internet black hole chuck the way the gods intended it quick shout out to garib nawaz for the practically free egg parata i just devoured this is definitely going to tide me over through recording this episode and doing all the radio edits and whatnot, and then some probably. But just in case, I have another one in reserve. So thanks, Garib Nawaz, for always being you. I'll be your guide through hell for the next couple of weeks. And for those of you who've been sticking with me for the Monday and Tuesday episodes, thank you for listening. Uh, Chuck will return to the interview booth on the other side of the glass on Monday, August 14th. Presumably, uh, producing will be Kat Jarvanen, who will also be making a return to the show at that time. She'll be there to hear all about Chuck's Respite from writing shows, conducting interviews, and whatever the hell else he does here in hell. I trust he'll fill us in on all the happenings at the usual summer confines. If you're not satisfied with his account of his vacation... Uh, on the air, you can welcome him back in person at the next office hours on Wednesday, August 16th at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's beautiful West Ridge neighborhood. Carrie's is located at 2251 West Devon Avenue. Office hours run from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., as Chuck likes to say. It's a meet-and-greet that's actually a drink-and-think. And I can confirm there's a lot of drinking and a lot of thinking. When you do pop into office hours, be sure to check out the art show right here in Second City Studios above Carrie's Lounge. This is Art features a wide range of art for your perusal and maybe even purchase. 
neither This Is Hell nor Carrie's Lounge take a cut from the art sales at the This Is Art art show. That's right. 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. It's pretty cool if you ask me. No office hours this week or next, listeners. I know I threatened popping into Carrie's tonight, August 2nd, but uh, I think I need a... My body needs a rest. It's been a uh, rough work week between the main gig with some pressing deadlines and running this this here old uh, radio show and podcast all by my lonesome. It's a labor of love. We are on episode three of a six-episode deep dive into the work and insights related on our show and interviews with prolific historian and listener favorite Gerald Horn recorded between 2018 and 2023 for those of you who aren't familiar with Gerald Horn and his work he's a pretty big deal in the discipline of history especially in uh, radical historiography and historiography of race and racial capitalism. He's the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written over 30 books and over a hundred scholarly articles and reviews about race and racism and its relations to uh, other structures of social and everyday life such as labor politics civil rights international relations and war as well as extensive writing about the film industry his phd comes from columbia his jd comes from cal berkeley his ba comes from princeton university and this year, he won the Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association, who state that Horn, as a longtime activist in anti-racist and working-class struggles, um, his research and scholarship played and continues to play an important role in bringing to the fore dimensions of struggles for freedom along axes and intersections of class, gender, and race. This combination made him not only a student of the black radical tradition, but is one of its major figures alongside Herbert Aptiker, Manning Marable, and Cedric Robinson. He's in pretty impressive company there. Each of the six episodes in this Gerald Horn interview deep dive from the This Is Hell archives uh, will be posted in chronological order. Uh, Monday, July 31st's episode featured an interview with Horn about his 2018 study published by Monthly Review Press titled The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Yesterday's episode, that is Tuesday, August 1st, featured 
a 2019 interview on his book published that same year by international publishers titled White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. If you haven't listened to these episodes already, I highly recommend checking them both out. Especially Monday's interview discussing the apocalypse of settler colonialism during the 17th century. Today's interview offers a sort of prequel to that book. It discusses the findings and insights from Horn's 2021 American Book Award winner, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, published in 2020 by Monthly Review Press. Coming up after the interview, I will give you a preview of next week's Gerald Horn interview topics, as well as reveal the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. This week's question asks, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? What is the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? I will also announce my favorite answer of the week, and I have the sole power to do that this week and next. The winner, of course, gets their choice of This Is Hell swag uh, available at our website. And listeners, we have some new items in. Be sure to check these out. I know you're always looking for new ways to represent yours and God's favorite radio show, This Is Hell. Before all that, however, after the interview, we get to hear from Jeff Dorchin. And not just any Jeff Dorchin, I might add. But a Jeff Dorchin speaking to us from May of 2022, during last year's Supreme Court session in which the fanatical conservative clerics, uh, I mean, I mean justices, it's an easy slip up. It's the robes and the religious fanaticism and their, you know, assertion that their unelected lifelong term branch of government has literal supremacy atop the constitutional order over the other two branches, forming not a backstop, but a sort of rule by clerical decree, sort of what they're trying to turn the institution into. Anyway, back in May, that Supreme Court session uh, made a lot of headway in crippling civil liberties and especially crippling bodily autonomy and the choice to remain pregnant or terminate one's pregnancy. In this best of the moment of truth, in recognition of the Supreme Court's continued lousy decisions, Jeff recommends thinking of Scrantonin Scamuel Scrotus Scaleto as a composite of past radical Catholic fascists. Man, I love when people have the nerve to use the F word on these people. Because I think it fits. I know there's a huge academic debate about that, but that's not my field. Without further delay, 
Here's Chuck and Gerald Horn's discussion of his work, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This book and the discussion about it explores the terrains of race, religion, and capital and slavery across the 16th century Atlantic world. As European powers pillaged Africa and the Americas of both people and resources, their destruction created a the enduring formations of life in the 21st century, white supremacy and rapacious capitalism. The arc of history bends towards nothing because there is no arc of history because this is hell. I'll catch you all after the interview. This is hell. The history of the transatlantic slave trade is finally getting the attention it has always deserved but never attained with establishment institutions like the New York Times offering the deep analysis of the 1619 Project. That said, the African slave trade landed on the shores of what would become the United States a century earlier than 1619, here to help us understand what we miss when we do not recognize the first century of the transatlantic slave trade returning to This Is Hell. Historian Gerald Horn is author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great having you on the show, and I'm certain that you don't know this, but in 2018, when you were on our show, the book that you discussed with us, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that book was we named as one of the best books to be discussed on This Is Hell in 2018. Then you come back on here in 2019, and you talk to us about White Supremacy Confronted. That book we named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. So you're going for a three-peat this, uh, this week here, Gerald, and I'm really looking forward to naming your book this book here, one of our favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell in 2020. Uh, you write that uh, it should not have been deemed surprising when in 1977, Washington's ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young, a former chief aide to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., asserted audaciously that London invented racism. Instead, the pastor Coombe diplomat was pelted ferociously in a hailstorm of invective as he backpedaled rapidly. Actually, London had a point it did not articulate. If anything, its bastard offspring in Washington and the government the envoy represented was probably more culpable for the continuation of this pestilence as it lurched into incipient being in the 1580s in what is now North Carolina and gravitated toward a model of development that diverged from those spurred by the Ottomans in Madrid, then rebelled in 1776 to ensure this putridness would endure. But slavery dates back, and this is going to bug me just for asking you this, slavery dates back to biblical times. The Egyptians enslaved the Jews. So what would you say to someone, because I always hear that, what would you say to someone who argues slavery has been around forever and was not any kind of invention of the United States? Well, the short answer is, that the slavery that comes out of North America is a different kind of slavery. That is to say, it's a racialized slavery. In fact, the journalist and author, Isabel Wilkerson, has now suggested that what we're enduring, that is to say, black people in North America, is a kind of caste racism. That is to say, caste emerging from the system you still despise in India. And what I, what I was trying to suggest in that sentence that you just quoted 
is that, yes, there had been slavery before 1619. In fact, there was slavery in what is now the Carolinas as early as the 1520s. And there had been slavery even in the 1400s with Portugal and Spain in particular uh, foraying into Africa and enslaving individuals. And of course, the uh, a champion of slavery were the Ottoman Turks, the precursor of today's Turkey, who were equal opportunity enslavers. They enslaved Europeans. So look at the history of Albania and Bosnia and Serbia, for example. They enslaved Africans as well. But one of the differences between slavery before North American slavery is that if you look at the coloration, if I can use that term, of the ruling elite in Saudi Arabia, for example, you'll find many dark-skinned individuals who are part of the elite, some of the richest people in that country. Recall Prince Bandar of Saudi Arabia, known as Bandar Bush during the era of U.S. President George W. Bush because they were so close. Uh, he was the US Saudi ambassador to the United States. Uh, his private plane was painted in the colors of the Dallas Cowboys, silver and blue. But until recently, black people in the United States were not allowed to rise to the highest level, and that has to do quite a bit with the racialized slavery that obtained in North America. One of the things I was just thinking about that comes up in your book is how frightened Europeans were of becoming Ottoman slaves, how the Ottomans were just across from the, of the Mediterranean from places like France and Spain, and they were very concerned that somehow they were going to become slaves as well, because as you were pointing out, the Ottomans were equal opportunity slaveholders. They weren't just holding people who were based on one race or based on one religion. They were, they were uh, equal opportunity slaveholders. So if the Europeans were so frightened, this is something I've always wondered, if they were so frightened of becoming slaves, what explains their willingness to impose that same frightening slavery on Africans or anyone else? Why does it always seem, and you point this out in your book, that so often people who are the slaves later become slaveholders, and that is just seemingly a natural process? Well, with regard to Africans, with regard to black people, uh, it goes back to this racialization process. That is to say, uh, number one, since this is erupting, that is to say the North American uh, slavery in the 1500s during an era of religious conflict, uh, Catholic versus Protestant, Christian versus Jewish, Christian versus Muslim, etc. And the Africans oftentimes, according to the initials enslavers, speaking of the English, they, the, the, the Africans were not viewed as human. I mean, initially they were viewed as heathens, that is to say they were not Christians, and then ultimately that morphs into their being judged to be inferior because they're black. And I think that's the short answer to a very complicated question. If slavery was religion-based and then it became race-based, that would change our identity from kind of a religious-oriented identity to a race-based identity. So to what extent is race today, that racial identity today, still defined by slavery? Well, I would say that race and racism grows out of religion and religious bigotry. As suggested 
the Africans initially were thought not to be Christians, and therefore they were deemed to be worthy of enslavement. And then ultimately they were seen as being inferior because they come from a so-called inferior race, that is to say black people. But you have to understand the global context as well. You have to understand the rise of Martin Luther in 1517 and the so-called Protestant Reformation, the rebellion within Catholicism, which then begins to creep into England by the 1530s. I know that in Chicago, you recently had a well-known play that talked about how Henry VIII kept uh, killing his, or well, maybe not killing, but being responsible for the disposal of his wives because he wanted a divorce when the Catholic Church would not give it to him, which gave him impetus to uh, defect to the Protestant side. But of course, what also was happening is that the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church, fundamentally had divided the world between and amongst the Spanish and the Portuguese, which left England and London out in the cold. So there was further material incentive to divert and defect to the Protestants. This helps to initiate a series of religious conflicts culminating in Rwanda-style massacre, particularly in France in the 1570s. But what happens is that the English cut a deal with the Muslims against the interests of the Ottoman Turks. When they liquidate the Catholics in England and in London, oftentimes the metal from the monasteries are shipped to Turkey in order to be used as materiel for the construction of weapons that could then be utilized against the Spanish Catholics. Uh, this, of course, leads to an attempt by the Spanish Catholics to overthrow Queen Elizabeth, uh, who is the leader of England in the 1580s, which fails. And therein, you begin to see the rise of England uh, after that failed overthrow of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, meanwhile, in Africa, what's happening is that the English are not only allying with Muslims in Turkey, they're allying with Muslims in North Africa, particularly in Moroccan. And if you want to pinpoint the precipitous and vertiginous decline of Africa, you could do worse than go to 1591, when the Moroccans, aided by the English, helped to destabilize the Songhai Empire in central West Africa, which then has knock-on effects as the destabilization cascades southward as far south as today's Nigeria, which softens up West Africa and that part of Africa for the onrushing African slave trade, which in part helps to account for why so many black people are in North America, not least Chicago. I should also say that the English diverged from the Spanish because in a sense they had to in terms of who was going to be a settler. The Spanish had a religious qualification for settler, for, for being a settler. So therefore, in 1492, when they sponsor Columbus crossing the ocean blue, they also in, accelerate the Inquisition, where they forced their Jewish minority to convert to Catholicism on pain of torture or death. Uh, this causes many in the Jewish minority to migrate, not only to Ottoman Turkey, uh, where they were treated much better, 
but also to the Netherlands and also to London itself, which was ironic since England had expelled this Jewish population in 1291. So when London opens its embrace to the Iberian Jewish population and to other Jewish populations and opens its embrace to Irish Catholics, who they were also harassing and uh, engaging in depredations against, this was not necessarily because of some sort of uh, political enlightenment, which is how many historians have portrayed it. It was basically because they didn't have that many choices if they were to survive against the thrust of the Spanish Catholics. Likewise, the Spanish Catholics, because they had a religious qualification for settlement, were able to empower a thin sliver of Africans in a way that London could not. From the beginning of settlement in Cuba, for example, there was a free Negro population because these Africans professed Catholicism. And historically, once the United States, excuse me, once England moved into what they called Virginia in 1607 and then moved into what it called Georgia in the 1730s, these particular settlements that were close to Spanish Florida were harassed perpetually by black men in Spanish uniform. In fact, one of the bloodiest slave revolts in the history of colonial North America takes place in South Carolina in 1739, in no small measure instigated by Spanish blacks in uniform. And indeed, when the United States finally ousted the Spanish from Florida, circa 1819, circa 1820, you see many of these blacks who speak Spanish fleeing in mass uh, to Cuba because they were trying to uh, escape what they knew to be the racial tyranny of the newly born United States of America. You mentioned eminent scholar Geraldine Hang, who has argued that at least in by the 13th century, England had become the first racial state in the West, referring to the pervasive anti-Judaism that then prevailed. And just as it became easier to impose an expansionist foreign policy that propelled colonialism, given the experience with the Crusades, likewise, it became easier to impose the racism that underpinned settler colonialism and slavery once anti-Judaism became official policy in London. So race works to advance an expansionist policy, leading to settler colonialism, leading to slavery, maybe further causing imperialism. How much of a threat to expansionist foreign policy is addressing race and race relations? Is that one of the reasons that we see so many different governments, so many different states around the world right now, uh, so concerned about what is happening with the uprising because when you do address race, you address the idea of expansionist foreign policy. Well, I think there's something to, to your question. And keep in mind that, as noted, the creation of race tends to grow out of religion. Uh, that is to say that the scholar Donald Matthews, who I quote, goes so far as to suggest that when you have the era of lynching, in the late 19th century, in the first few decades of the 20th century, when it's at its zenith, uh, he espied a kind of religious orientation to lynching with regard to the burning of crosses, with regard to lynching almost seen as a sacrament of white supremacy and a sacrament of racism. And with regard to the historian that you quote, who writes about the Jewish population in England, what I go on to say is that it's remarkable 
how the kinds of slanders that were used to defame the Jewish population in England are easily transferred to defame the black population that's enslaved in North America. Uh, that is to say that they have allegedly a particular odor. Uh, that is to say that uh, they have uh, tails uh, and the like. And with regard to racism and capitalism, one of the points that I make in the book at hand and in previous writings is that what you basically have over the past few hundred years is a transition from religion as the axis of society, which of course had existed hundreds of years, but then with the plundering and pillaging of the Americas and the arising of the African slave trade, you begin to see race being an axis of society. Indeed, in one of my earlier books, I quote the great Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell when the 1830s suggests that when the rebels overthrew the king in London in 1776, that they basically replaced the aristocracy of lineage with the aristocracy of race, that they basically replaced the tyranny of lineage with the tyranny of racism. And so therefore, it's not surprising that in this era of the rise of capitalism, it walks hand in glove with the rise of racism as a phenomenon. And likewise, it's not surprising that two of the first nations out of the box with regard to establishing capitalism, it's not only England, but it's also the Dutch who play a major role in the book at hand. And keep in mind that the Dutch not only reached the southern tip of Africa in 1652, leading to the formation of what eventually comes to be called the Republic of South Africa, or at one time the Union of South Africa, but recall that they take racism to perhaps its zenith with the establishment of apartheid in 1948, which finally is overthrown by Nelson Mandela and his comrades in 1994. So I think that in order to understand and effectively struggle against the kinds of inequalities that we're enduring in the United States today, it's very important to understand this history, just like if you're trying to understand the expansionist foreign policy of the United States of America, if you're trying to understand how and why it was that the United States seized a significant percentage of territory that once belonged to Mexico in the War of Aggression of 1846, and it's very important to understand how Mexicans were racialized, which then helps to justify seizing their land because they're deemed to be of a so-called inferior, quote, race, unquote. You were just mentioning how the Dutch uh, bringing of apartheid to South Africa. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the situation with the Spanish settlers in Florida, where in so many African slaves were being or so many Africans were being imported into Florida as slaves that eventually the uh, Africans outnumbered the Spanish settlers. And while I was reading that, all I could think of was this probably led to a system of, again, a system that was 
pre-apartheid, but a kind of apartheid system, a, major, a minority rule system. Uh, to what extent did the Spanish failure of settling in Florida, in southeastern U.S., to what extent was that failure based on the failures of apartheid? And if it was based on the failures of apartheid, then why didn't the United States, why didn't the London settlers figure out the failures of apartheid? Well, first of all, one of the points that dawned on me as I was researching this book and writing it is that oftentimes these elites do not necessarily have a blueprint. Oftentimes they remind me of what's going on in Washington. They're sort of making it up as they go along and they're engaging in what's called the creative adaptations. For me, for example, when I was talking about how uh, London moved away from religion as a qualifier for settlement, to me, that wasn't necessarily pursuant to a blueprint. They basically didn't have that many alternatives that they were going to compete with the big boys, the big boys being primarily the Spanish. So in a sense, they had to move towards pan-Europeanism, which then morphs into whiteness and then morphs into white supremacy. Whereas the Spanish, interestingly enough, they introduced a system in their settlement in St. Augustine, Florida, established in 1565, uh, oftentimes St. Augustine builds itself as the oldest uh, continuing European settlement in North America, uh, preceding Jamestown, Virginia, by decades. Well, what's interesting about St. Augustine is that from its inception, and I would say even more so for Cuba, uh, which precedes St. Augustine in terms of uh, Spanish settlement, there is a class angle embedded in the black community. Uh, which you don't begin to see at least dramatically in the United States until after slavery is overthrown in 1865. And then, of course, and now in Chicago, you can see it clearly, uh, where you have uh, numerous, many, countless numbers of poor Blacks, and then you have some who are not poor at all and who are doing quite well. Well, that was the system that the Spanish had with the Blacks who were doing well, basically, um, because they professed Catholicism, uh, and therefore they were not heathen. Now, keep in mind as well that I think you mentioned in your introductory remarks that one of the reasons why London was able to prevail in North America was because the indigenous population oftentimes allied with the black population to chase out the Spanish. For example, as early as the 1820s, excuse me, the 1520s, the Spanish from their perch in Santo Domingo had sailed to what is now South Carolina to establish a settlement. But the Africans, the enslaved Africans on board, once they landed, defected to the Native American side and chased the Spanish back to uh, the Caribbean. Even after St. Augustine is established in 1565, the Spanish are very aware, understandably, about England's plans to settle in Roanoke in the 1580s, in what is now called the Carolinas. And certainly by the time that England established a foothold in what they call Virginia in 1607, Virginia, of course, supposedly named after the supposed Virgin Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the Spanish wanted to do something about that. They could see what was going on. But they were tied down by these exhaustive battles with the indigenous population of Florida, 
oftentimes allying with the black population of Florida. And so therefore, they were not able to do anything about destabilizing this English settlement in 1607 in Virginia. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about how, despite the fact that Spain had the first mover's advantage, after all, they sponsored Columbus. After all, as noted, they had tried to establish a settlement in the Carolinas by the 1520s. London, in a sense, had a second mover's advantage. <laughs> what I mean is they could wait until the Spanish were exhausted in their interminable battle with the indigenous population and the Africans in North America. And that led these combatants to weaken each other to the point where London could then glide into what they call Virginia in 1607. And that's one of the reasons why we're today in North America speaking English and not Spanish. By the way, I just want to tell you, again, this is an incredible book, and I am betting it's going to be named as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show this year. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn. He is author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is Gerald's third appearance here on This Is Hell, and you can go to our website, thisishell.com, and just search on Gerald's name, Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and you will be able to find our all of our interviews with Gerald. You write about the seeds of the apocalypse, which led to the foregoing uh, slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, the precursors of capitalism, planted in the long 16th century, roughly 1492 to 1607, which eventuated in what is euphemistically termed modernity, a process that reached its apogee in North America. So did slavery, white supremacy, and settler colonialism and the precursors of capitalism cause capitalism? Or did capitalism cause slavery, white supremacy, and settler colonialism and the precursors of capitalism? Because I, what, how, do we, how do we view the world differently when we understand that capitalism wasn't before slavery and white supremacy and settler colonialism, but was an outgrowth of those processes? Well, I think it helps to provide a roadmap in terms of trying to replace the kinds of rapacious capitalism we are now enduring in the United States with a more humane system. Um, and, I, and I do mean the kind of rapacious capitalism with, that we have in the United States, because, of course, it's this kind of rapacious capitalism that we have in the United States that has basically eroded the possibility of having a sustainable public health care system that have that would have been possible when able to arrest the spreading of this pandemic uh, that bids fair to kill hundreds of thousands of U.S. individuals. Uh, it's the kind of uh, white supremacy that undergirds this system of capitalism in the United States that also helps to explain why it is that people of African descent in particular have been devastated so ferociously by this pandemic, uh, not necessarily because of their alleged pre-existing conditions, although I'm sure that is a factor, that is to say high blood pressure, diabetes at all, but also because these are workers who are grouped at the bottom of society. Uh, that is to say, these are workers in nursing home facilities, uh, stacking the shelves at grocery stores, uh, serving food in hospital cafeterias, etc. So I think it's fair to say that capitalism itself 
arises from the seeds planted by slavery and white supremacy in particular, because keep in mind that in order to transport enslaved Africans across the Atlantic, and in order to transport European settlers across the Atlantic, that presupposes a shipbuilding industry, which presupposes workers who are getting wages, and then in a so-called virtuous circle, using those wages to buy goods, which are then produced by other workers. Keep in mind as well that in order to guard against frequent slave revolts, which happened repetitively on slave ships, you needed an insurance industry so that those who had invested in those ill-fated voyages could be made whole. And that helps to generate surplus capital, which could then be used to invest in other industries and also could be used to develop a banking industry, which then loans out money to other entrepreneurs. And so therein, you begin to see the roots of capitalism. Keep in mind that, as I said in my 17th century book, that the African slave trade was one of the most profitable, profitable enterprises known to humankind. You could invest $1 and get a $1,700 return. There are those, not least in Chicago, I'm sure, who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit, not to mention some African they did not know. And so in order to understand this system, uh, which we are now enduring, you have to understand its roots and its origins, just as when you go to a doctor, oftentimes a doctor will take a detailed medical history so that the doctor can make a better diagnosis and plan for treatment. That is to say, if your parents had diabetes, then your doctor may suspect that you may have the signs of diabetes and therefore the doctor will ask you questions to try to elicit whether or not you have you know, extreme thirst or other kinds of signs for diabetes and then prescribe a treatment plan. Well, likewise, if you're going to prescribe a treatment plan for this ailing patient known as the United States of America, it's very important to know the history of this ailing patient so that we can develop a more adequate and accurate treatment plan. You talk about how race erases the idea of class. Can we address racial antagonism without ignoring class? Or by its very nature, is race meant to obfuscate class? Because you talk about these class collaborationist projects. And I was wondering if maybe white supremacy is an intentional logic that rationalizes the domination of the wealthy over all of us. Does white supremacy legitimize the oppression of even white supremacists by the rich? Well, it's interesting. What, what I say in the book is that settler colonialism, that is to say the process whereby Europeans crossed the Atlantic and invaded indigenous land and set themselves up as the rulers and over time liquidated and ousted the indigenous population, that this involved class collaboration between and amongst poor and richer Europeans. Richer Europeans were the investors. Poor Europeans were oftentimes the foot soldiers. In my 17th century book, I talk about how that comes to a head in 1676 with Bacon's Rebellion, when Nathaniel Bacon in the land that was called Virginia led an uprising against London because he felt that London was not moving rapidly enough to take the land away from the Native Americans. 
even though he was a man of means, he was accompanied by those without means who felt that they had something to gain from getting Native American land. And perhaps with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, they could then get enslaved Africans and then become wealthy and thereby enjoy the so-called American dream. Well, this class collaboration, I dare say, is still with us today. I'm not sure you can explain the election of 2016, that is to say the presidential election, when a faux billionaire is supported by 63 million people. Now, it's mathematically impossible for 63 million voters to be part of the 1% in a nation of 335 million people. Inevitably, there were numerous working class and middle class individuals of European descent who were engaged in class collaboration by voting for an administration whose signature policy would be cutting cutting taxes for the wealthy in December 2017, with presumably these 63 million feeling that somewhere down the line, they'll become wealthy too, and therefore they'll be able to benefit from the tax cut. So I think that once again, in order to understand this settler colonial project that is the United States of America, we really have to understand the history, and we really have to move away from the mythology. And I'm afraid to say that the U.S. left, although it has attained many victories, oftentimes has been bogged down in mythology. I think of that when I think of the signature anthem of the U.S. left, which is this land is your land, this land is my land. Well, well, actually, this land is their land. This land is the Native American land. Even the Supreme Court acknowledged that when elites in principle, they said that half of Oklahoma uh, belongs to Native Americans, which puts the U.S. Supreme Court, a right-wing body, to the, to the left of a good deal of the so-called U.S. left. So once again, we really have to do a deeper dive into history if we're ever to find a way out of this morass in which we find ourselves. To what extent did the settlers from London learn to simply be more brutal than their Spanish counterparts counterparts were to slaves? Was there more to it than sheer brutality? Well, that's an interesting question. One of the points I bring forward is that one of the signal factors that aids the Europeans is the constant internal warfare, for example, in the British Isles, which necessitates the building of an arms industry, which the English can then wield against the Irish and the Scots, and then ultimately perfect that machinery to use against the Africans and the indigenous of the Americas. Now, what's interesting about Spain is that they too have internal conflict, but recall that what was happening in Spain for hundreds of years leading up to 1492 was a significant occupation of the Iberian Peninsula by Muslims and Arabs. And so a lot of their warfare was against the so-called other, whereas the warfare in the British Isles was against, at least today, we would see as those who were, they were Christians, and of course, uh, until uh, the 1530s, uh, they were all Catholics. But I think that the, the one of the differences, however, and this is something that's in the book and that we really need to focus on, is how there's few, there are few things more deadly than religious conflict. And in the run-up to the Londoners crossing the Atlantic, 
they were enmeshed in a ceaseless cycle of conflicts between English Protestants and Irish Catholics in particular. And these conflicts were so murderous that it's easy to see how and why those murderous tactics and strategies honed against the Irish, then crossed the Atlantic and were used to diabolical means with diabolical means against the indigenous population, the African population. And you point out that uh, conquerors bold their, these conquerors, these white conquerors, bold their way into indigenous settlements, murdering all they encountered, including small children, old men, pregnant women, especially pregnant women. They hacked them mercilessly, slicing open their bulging bellies with their sharpened swords with macabre intensity. They grabbed suckling infants by the, their feet, ripping them from their mother's breasts, dashing them headlong against the ground. There were holocaustic levels of slaughter and enslavement, asserts scholar Matthew Restall with accuracy, speaking of Mexico in words that are hardly unique to this territory. We're taught that genocide, and it's not called a genocide, but we're taught that it was caused by germs, by invasive animal species, uh, other than Europeans, that is, that it was all some sort of horrible mistake caused by unknowing people desperate to get out from under a monarch. However, something that is holocaustic suggests it was far more intentional. To what extent was the European invasion and its apocalypse that was set upon both indigenous and Africans intentional, and how much was it all a big mistake that happened to be fortunate for Europeans? <laughs> Well, I would say it's more the former than the latter, um, which is one of the reasons why you still have rationalizations of it. And that's part of the problem in the United States, because if you can rationalize genocide and mass enslavement, you can rationalize just about anything. In fact, if you can rationalize genocide and mass enslavement, in some ways, you're paving the way for future genocide and future mass enslavement. I mean, that's the irony of, of U.S. history in the sense that even those who consider themselves to be progressive oftentimes engage in this rationalization process, which I dare say might come back to bite many of them. But in any case, we do know that, yes, viruses and microbes did play a role in terms of the devastation, not least of the indigenous population, but it would be an error to elevate viruses and microbes over projectiles and bullets in terms of explaining the devastation of the indigenous population, the enslavement of the Africans. Uh, it would be a mistake to downplay fire because fire was not only a frequent tactic used by the enslaved, it was also a frequent tactic used by the settlers to rout the indigenous population, that is to say, just burning down their entire villages, their entire village, and watching human beings turn into ashes and embers. We all know, well, at least many of us know, about how during the middle of the 18th century, you had the notorious Lord Amherst, for which the college in Massachusetts and the city in Massachusetts of the same name is known, Amherst, Massachusetts, Amherst College, and how he helped to circulate the germ-written blanket amongst Native Americans to ensure that they would uh, go to the great beyond or certainly go six feet under. So we've had a lot of scholarship in, in recent years that upended this mythology 
that basically suggests that viruses and microbes help to explain a European dominance. Uh, I would say that it's generally due to these projectiles already made reference to and to fire, and also this creative adaptation whereby those who are warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scots, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, all of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, they're rebranded in a way that would make Madison Avenue blush into this new identity politics called whiteness, a militarized identity politics as that. One of the things that you point out, and I cannot, I, I don't want to not mention this because it just fascinates me. You write, the deadliness of the resultant apocalypse commenced virtually from the day Columbus reached terra firma in October 1492. and the decades immediately following, an estimated 650,000 indigenous were enslaved and in 1580, so this is 39 years before 1619, and 1580 in Algiers, enslaved indigenous from the Americas were to be found. Not even a hundred years after Columbus, the people that have come to be unfortunately called Native Americans instead of a more accurate term like Native peoples were being exported to Africa to become slaves. What happens when we erase that history, when we only see the U.S. slave trade as a one-way trade of Africans being imported to the U.S. and not one of a transatlantic trade that even enslaved indigenous people, a demographic that most people in the United States today do not associate with centuries of slavery? Well, I think it sheds light on what happened in Grant Park in Chicago days ago when you had enraged protesters trying to bring down a statue of that very same Christopher Columbus and were being beaten back furiously by Chicago's finest, referring to the police department. Uh, that is to say, when people finally learned the truth, the truth that had been shrouded when they were in school, I think it, it enrages them. It infuriates them. It moves them to impulsive action. And you are correct. You can find indigenous DNA all over the world because what happens is that the settlers, in addition to liquidating the indigenous population, oftentimes send them to faraway slave markets, faraway slave markets in the Caribbean, faraway slave markets in Algeria, because Algeria, um, for the longest, was one of the most substantial slave markets on, on planet Earth. They could be so, sold to slave markets in uh, Ottoman Turkey. Um, their DNA can be found uh, all over the world. It is really one of the major crimes against humanity. And certainly, uh, I would like to see our indigenous brothers and sisters uh, walk in the footsteps of their comrades in the black community and demand reparations uh, from the successor regime in London and in Washington, because there's no statute of limitations with regard to crimes against humanity. Uh, that is to say, there are some crimes uh, after seven, 10 years, the prosecutor will not be able to bring a charge for, because of these statutes of limitation. With regard to crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, there are no statutes of limitation. And certainly the question of what befell the indigenous population of North America, not least in Illinois, is a prime example of a crime against humanity.
One last question for you, Gerald. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of the new book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. This is Gerald's third appearance on our show. You can hear all of our interviews with Gerald by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on the name Horn, H-O-R-N-E. In 2018, when he was on to discuss his book, White Supremacy Confronted, that book was named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is hell. Uh, That was in 2019. And then in 2018 as well, when he was on to talk about his book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that book was also named as one of the favorite books to be discussed on This Is Hell that year. So he's going for a three-peat. One last question for you, Gerald, and it is, as you know, or might remember, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's where this answer is going to be found. You write the heralded religious liberty that characterized the Republican secession in the late 18th century, coincidentally followed by a uh, followed, uh, sorry, coincidentally allowed for a pan-European mobilization to crush rebellious Africans and indigenous alike. How was freedom of religion weaponized against Africans and the indigenous? Well, first of all, of course, freedom of religion, like most of the vaunted and fabled Bill of Rights, did not apply to Africans and indigenous, but for example, the fabled Second Amendment with regard to the right to bear arms, uh, no, that did not apply to the Indians and the Negroes, for sure. And likewise, with regard to religious liberty, likewise, that did not apply to the Indians and the Negroes either, because their religions were deemed to be inferior and were therefore worthy of being wiped out and stamped out. And, of course, you had those like the Cherokees, for example, who used to occupy a significant amount of territory in the southeast quadrant of what is now the United States of America. And they converted to Christianity. Uh, They welcomed Christian missionaries. Uh, They started dressing like the settlers. Uh, They printed newspapers. In fact, I I draw upon some of their newspapers in the Cherokee language and the English language in the book at hand. Uh, but they still had to go. I mean, uh, Andrew Jackson, Mr. Trump's favorite president, uh, engineered the Trail of Tears, which forced them to uh, evacuate. That is to say, a, a process of ethnic cleansing. And they had to move to Oklahoma, where supposedly that was going to be their land as long as the river shall flow and the grass shall grow. But in any case, the First Amendment basically called a ceasefire with regard to religious conflict between and amongst Europeans. Recall what we had talked about moments ago uh, concerning uh, Irish Catholics versus Protestant Londoners, for example, or Protestant or Christian Londoners versus uh, Jewish populations in England that were forced to evacuate in 1291. Well, what happens with the First Amendment is that there's a kind of ceasefire, a truce, with regard to those religious conflicts, and that truce was necessary in order to continue moving west, having enough soldiers to make war against the Native Americans and having enough settlers to then occupy their land and enough warm bodies to then overwhelm the indigenous and the Africans alike. So once again, I think that the scholars of the so-called Enlightenment Uh, have thrown dust in the eyes of the population by presenting to you this fairy tale about so-called religious liberty, when actually it was much more of a crass and pragmatic maneuver 
but we all know that that kind of religious liberty oftentimes uh, was not observed. You had burning of uh, Catholic convents in the Northeast of the United States as late as the 1830s. We all know about the long history of anti-Semitism, but we also know that uh, many who made it across the Atlantic, despite those difficulties I've just enumerated, felt that they had a better shot in the United States of America. But once again, it wasn't necessarily because the United States of America was more progressive or enlightened. It was because the United States of America had a more formidable internal problem in terms of routing the indigenous population from their land and keeping the Africans in check. And therein rests the so-called secret to the, quote, American dream, unquote. Gerald, that's why I love having you as a guest on our show. That's why we keep naming your books as our favorite to be featured on the show, both in 2018, 2019. I have a feeling we're going to be doing it again this year. Thank you so much for being back on and quit writing such in- interesting books, will you? I'll try. <laughs> the pandemic has put me in dry dock. All right. Well, take care. And it's great to hear your voice again. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show in the very near future. Thank you for inviting me. Always. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you found Chuck Mertz's interview with Gerald Horn edifying. Work from radical historians such as Horn do more than just shed light on the crimes of the past, on who's to blame for certain states of affairs and the development of certain social structures. They show us that these structures, some of them dynamic in their own right, but nonetheless long-lasting, going back centuries, structures like race, capitalist property relations, the settler colonial cultural impulse. All of these are the products of conscious creation, not some sort of unfolding of some sort of primordial human nature. The human nature cop-out is one of the most common things I get to play whack-a-mole with in student papers when I teach my history classes, I know that much. If you found that conversation edifying and appreciate that This Is Hell brings you conversations like this that you are hard-pressed to find anywhere else in the, especially the corporate mainstream media, uh, then consider showing your appreciation for the show and becoming a supporter of this is hell on our patreon page at patreon.com slash this is hell your subscription keeps the lights on here the bills paid the servers running and producers like me and kat jarvanen and dan kugler paid to bring our audience this content absolutely free your contribution also entitles you to a discount on all merch available from this is hell.com early access to the question from hell for the week the ability to have your own question from hell for Chuck answered each week, access to a deep library of hand-picked interviews from our archive, and of course, 
the This Is Hell weekly bonus Patreon episode every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time. Tomorrow's Patreon bonus episode uh, features Chuck's close reading of the community surrounding his college at the lake, where he'll be spending this week and next with family. Then, in an interview recorded on August 2nd, 2008, Peter Rogers discusses the crisis facing the supply of fresh water. Peter wrote the Scientific American article, Facing the Freshwater Crisis. In it, he argues that as demand for freshwater soars, planetary supplies are becoming unpredictable. Existing technologies could avert the global water crisis, but they must be implemented soon. Peter is the Gordon McKay Professor of Environmental Engineering and Professor of City and Regional Planning at Howard University. He is also a Senior Advisor to the Global Water Partnership, an organization devoted to improving global water management practices, as well as the recipient of Guggenheim and 20th Century Fund Fellowships. So there you have it, folks. That's what lies in store for all of you Patreon supporters tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And it will go up at 10 a.m. sharp. I already have the post scheduled. Now, it's the time I know I've been waiting all week for, and I suspect a few of you feel the same way. That's right. It's time for Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. Scalia plus Alito equals mescalito. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito is an arrogant liar. In this, he takes after his dead mentor on the SCOTUS bench, Antonin Scalia, a man with neither a conscience nor an optimally working pancreas. Now, there is no shortage of flatulent losers on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett are the two most recently added passengers in that clown car, and they seem like token placeholders in a battle to turn the court into a stamp mold for decisions based on radical right-wing Catholicism. This court represents radical right-wing Catholicism more than any other faith, and it rules according to radical right-wing Catholic dictates, a fact that calls into question the court's integrity as a body reflecting the aims of the secular or deist framers of the Constitution to which it gives poorly informed lip service in its many partisan opinions. Let us remember what Bill Donahue, the president of the Catholic League, said about secular Jews, lest we misunderstand how much Catholic radical fascism owes to the Nazis. Secular Jews hate Christianity, he contended. They like anal sex and abortions. Alito, in his leaked and leaky draft and drafty opinion, spends his time debunking the notion that there is anything in the Constitution supporting a woman's right to end her pregnancy. He glibly elides or glides over the Ninth Amendment, in which rights not enumerated in the Constitution are reserved to the people. Sounds like Alito just didn't want to hear what the Constitution was saying. 
In any case, his real project is overturning Roe v. Wade, which doesn't rely on the Ninth Amendment to guarantee said right. So despite what the Ninth says, Alito, according to his masturbatory logic, needn't address it. Alito wants abortion made illegal. He contends the nation is split on abortion. It's not. And he knows it. The vast majority of us supports free, safe, legal access to abortion, particularly in the first and second trimesters. Alito, throughout his opinion, uses the phrase unborn human being, signaling where his allegiance lies with the misogynistic right-wing minority in the nation. Because he is an abortion choice antagonist and an overall antagonist of whatever he thinks the left is, nota bene Donahue above, Alito briefly feigns concern for the experience of the mother, but only out of vague obligation, and speaks mainly out of concern for the unborn human being, presumably the one party in this argument of which he feels himself the intellectual equal. I'm sure the little bean-sized fetuses agree with him heartily. You ever seen one of these things? I'm pretty sure I was given a dish of them as crispy banchan to eat before a Korean meal. An appendix to the opinion lists anti-abortion statutes beginning in 1825 and ending in 1952 in various states. It's there to support Alito's contention that there was no tradition of condoning a woman's right to end her pregnancy around the time of the framing of the Constitution. Of course, there was a tradition of keeping black people as property around then, too, but that that's not an issue. Incidentally, not a single statute mentions the intentions of the pregnant woman, until the second-to-last example in Kentucky in 1910, and therein to state the consent of the woman to an abortion is no defense for the provider. All the statutes punish the person who provides the abortion. The desires, motives, social conditions, relationship with the father, or needs of the mother, aside from mention of an exception in cases where continued pregnancy threatens the life of the mother, are completely ignored. Cases of rape and incestuous rape are not mentioned in a single instance. That is because the rights of women have expanded since the Constitution was first written. It's pretty clear that Alito doesn't find the expansion of rights to non-land-owning, non-white males a tradition worth acknowledging. It's even possible that the political interests Alito and his opinion are meant to placate find that tradition abhorrent. Whatever the case, it is Alito's obvious goal to wish it away by pretending it doesn't exist. Alito quotes dead Scalia, denigrating Roe versus Wade. He goes out of his way to chip away at the supporting laws and precedents supporting Roe. He does so in order to undermine Roe's status as settled precedent, or stare decisis, to which he claims adherence if only Roe weren't such a poorly supported precedent. Alito patently argues in bad faith when he denigrates Roe's unworkability and points to the imprecision of the words undue burden regarding the obtaining of a procedure to end a pregnancy. Would he apply the same derogatory judgment to the words unreasonable search and seizure or cruel and unusual punishment? Taking current trends as evidence, the difficulty in even finding an operating abortion clinic in certain states Texas, for example, argues for a quite uncomplicated understanding of the phrase undue burden, but that would require Alito to look outside of the document under consideration, 
the Constitution, and more precisely, the pre-Civil War Constitution, within which boundaries his vision is limited, like a mule wearing blinders. Can any judgment be made on any value-laden words or phrases without looking at the situations in the real world they may refer to? Who is this self-blindering jackass? No, the trend in abortion rights limitations is perfectly justified to Alito because the decision which allowed women to have the right to control their pregnancies' durations is so easy for him to mock and lambast. Nay, he's got a critical mass of fellow fascist Catholic fundamentalists on the court to bolster his bilious adjudication. He is correct in writing that Roe lied too much on appealing to the 14th Amendment's due process clause and privacy issues instead of the right of a human being to make their medical choices without the state having any say in the matter. As he points out, this was also a critique made by feminists at the decision's advent and has continued to be the critique the closer and closer the Federalist Society has moved to its goal of packing the SCOTUS with anti-choice radical Catholic fascists. We can call them Catholic Nazis. There's no reason not to. Pope Pius XII clearly saw no substantial disagreement between the Vatican and Berlin during the ethnic, sexually normative, racial, national, and ableist purges at the height of the Holocaust. Pius XII was a staunch anti-reproductive freedom authoritarian, as was Hitler, to whose projects of genocide the Vatican remained thoroughly agnostic and disinterested, and as Bill Donahue reminds us, Radical right-wing Catholicism has not progressed much in the intervening eight decades. I guess that's just women's bad luck, because now evil, grasping theocrats with no respect for the Constitution's tradition of broadening rights rather than curtailing them are in the majority, not in the nation, not in Congress, but simply on the heavy-handedly manipulated court. Dictatorial Catholic fascists are wielding the magnifying glass now, finding only what they want to find in the document they claim to be examining fairly and to the strict construction of which they purport to be adhering. Alito, assuming himself to be the sole intellectual on a court now crammed with a frat boy and a Stepford wife over the legitimate but usurped constitutional right of a democratic president, spends his time rooting around in old British law, neglecting and in fact flat out falsely denying the common law acceptance of a woman bringing on her period through medical means. So common was the practice that none other than constitutional framer and colonial nation founder Benjamin Franklin published a recipe for an abortion formula for women to make free use of. So much for no evidence. But I guess if one refuses to see it, it isn't there. And if you want to distort the history of common abortion acceptance in the colonial era because you have a different, more fascist agenda in mind, why not? Who can stop you now that democracy is fair game for destruction by gerrymanderers, wealthy ideological donors, court-preferring think tanks, and conspiracy-drunk yahoos? In a way, this decision could be a deceptively good thing because now the fight can move to destroying, by any means necessary, bad-faith Jesus peddlers who dismiss the bodily autonomy of women. The people want abortion to be considered a medical procedure out of the bounds of government regulation or prohibition. 
On the way to completing our revolution of the people against the corporate profiteers, of the earth against the polluters and destroyers, of abundant distribution versus false shortages, hoarding, and resource theft, let us make this landmark in the history of fascist jurisprudence be for us, the people, the straw that breaks the camel's back. This has been a moment of truth. Good day. There's a sad, unnatural feeling that hits me whenever I play a pre-recorded moment of truth and Jeff does not remain on the line to banter with Chuck, whoever else happens to be producing that day, but alas, those are the benefits of live radio and this is the pitfall of fake live radio, which I've been doing all week, listeners. And now the other moment you've all been waiting for. It's time to read your remaining answers to the week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? So I think I will give you the full rundown of all the questions since I have them all in front of me and it's a nice digestible amount. And then I will announce my favorite. And yes, I'm drunk with power about this. Let's see. Let's go look at Discord. Crickets on Discord. Tisk tisk Discord. Expected more out of you. But over on Twitter, Edison K is holding down the fort with the question from hell. Their response to the question, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? The shops are manned by everyone I've ever loved or hated. They are exceedingly kind and claim to have no recognition of me. Oh, I need to learn more about that, Edison, but it sounds like quite the bummer, to be honest. Over on Facebook, Dan K responds, Me, uh-huh. bringing the creepy with you, Dan. Well done. Elaine T responds, Republicans. I know Chuck has... Uh, Similar answer to you, Elaine. Adam A. reports that I commute downtown five days a week. The specter of capitalism that haunts Chicago's loop is a worrying apparition. Where the ghosts of, quote, no one wants to work commingle with the greedy spirit of, quote, whatever the market will bear. John T. says generally the men's room. Some of those roadside men's rooms are, uh, are quite phenomenal, especially some of the tagging that goes on. Especially all the pleas for sexual favors in bathroom stalls. I wonder if that actually works. Especially when, you know, phone numbers are involved and stuff. Tom G. responds, The endlessly looming prospect of encouraging yet another bed, bath, and beyond. <laughs> That's specific but i think i feel you there tom and then finally over on patreon erica x reports that they found out that a place where i did an artist residency is near a mass grave from the spanish civil war that's pretty bleak there are a few of those in spain from that conflict i imagine fabio l responds that my thoughts keep following me. 
Christopher C., my family is always there. I feel you, Chris. I also come from a family of creeps. The best kind, of course. Essential says, I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket where there were all these aisles and there were all these bathing caps that you could buy which had these kind of 4th of July plumes on them that were red and yellow and blue. I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. <laughs> Alright. That tickles me. Adi, in a less tickly response to the question, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? Widespread indentured labor and executions on the flimsiest of charges. Unfortunately, it's where I'm from, so I go back there from time to time. Coincidentally, an important strategic U.S. ally in the region. Can you guess which one it is? Could be any number of places. Guessing you're talking about the Philippines? Uh, let me know if I'm wrong on our social media. And last, Nas Refuge says, Highways. It's insane how much land was destroyed for them. It gives me a creepy feeling about it while I'm driving. I don't even own a car. Yeah, highways are pretty creepy. They've also been used to clear a lot of people and places out of cities, especially in the mid-20th century, as we all know. So which answer is the best answer to the question from hell for the week? It's a small but strong field this week. Christopher C., my family is always there, obviously tickled me, as did Essentials' vivid picture of a prematurely air-conditioned supermarket with weird bathing caps. Concise answer from Dan K., me. I uh, always like hearing those, The Men's Room by Jeff T. But I think... This week's answer has to be, and this is only listeners because it made me feel very seen. This week's winner is Fabio L. over on Patreon. That my thoughts keep following me. So congratulations, Fabio. You're the winner of this week's question from hell, entitling you to any piece of merch you see on our website thisishell.com uh, please be in touch shoot Chuck an email at chuck at thisishell.com to claim your prize or shoot us a message on Patreon since you are a patron and I will let Chuck know that you were in fact the winner coming up next week we continue our six-part deep dive into our This Is Hell interviews with historian Gerald Horn. Monday's episode turns to sports history and its intersection with race in Horn's 2020 work from international publishers titled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. We then return to the long reach of America's so-called peculiar institution of slavery as seen through the history of the Slaveholders' Republic in Texas in Horn's 2022 book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, 
Texas slavery and Jim Crow in and the roots of U.S. fascism from international publishers. One of my personal favorites. Finally, on Wednesday, we will revisit our most recent interview with Horn, recorded on July 10th, 2023, which discusses his most recent book from international publishers, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell, filling in for Chuck Mertz until his return from vacation on August 14th. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Jeffy, for your uh, moment of truth today. Stay beautiful. Keep being you. And I'll catch you next week. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>